Good evening, good citizens. This is June 2022's Dante's Old South, and I am your host, Clifford Brooks. This month, uh, in the introduction and conclusion, um, I'm going to read as I did when I first started the show, when uh, Richard Wenham with WTC and NPR, whom I stop right now and thank from the bottom of my heart, allowed me free reign behind the microphone. I had no idea what I was doing, and his guidance has been priceless. Before I launch into those who are going to be on this show, I want to give a huge thank you uh, to the members of the Southern Collective Experience, the editors of the Blue Mountain Review, and uh, those behind the scenes here at uh, Dante's who helped me keep my act together. Y'all are my sanity. To those out there who tune in every month to listen to me and hopefully enjoy all those that I bring around to um, to help life be and feel a little easier. I want to thank y'all too. This month, up first, we have poet Diane Seuss, whose collection, Frank, Sonnets won the Pulitzer in poetry this year. Following her is the incomparable novelist Robert Gwaltney, whose first work of fiction, The Cicada Tree, is a novel you have got to get your hands on. When I travel around, uh, especially in Richmond, out in the Blowing Rock, North Carolina area, up in Virginia, Linden Row Inn in Richmond is the place to stay. And out in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, it is definitely Meadowbrook Inn. The same wonderful folks own both locations, and I don't praise them and thank them because I'm paid to. I do it because I love to. Because when I'm out there, and it's quite a bit, uh, they always treat me like family, and I've seen them do that for everyone who comes through the door. And they'll do it for you. Yo. Be kind to one another. We're about to put ten toes in the ground and jump on this bad boy with both feet. And uh, in this feeling and verve of gratitude, um, I want to cement that in your hearts with this song by Joe Cocker called With a Little Help from My Friends. Sing you a song 
And up first, 
on June 2022's Dante's Old South, we have the incomparable Diane Seuss, this year's Pulitzer Award winner in poetry for her book, Frank Sonnets. Diane, how are you doing? Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm doing, you know, there's the long answer to that question, which would be really complicated. So I'm going to give you the short one, which is I'm doing well and trying to kind of ground myself in this reality. We talked a little bit uh, off camera, as it were, uh, how uh, shocking it is to be taken out of place where we've kind of ensconced ourselves in this bubble of safety and then thrown out with enormous amount of uh, public appeal. In this case, it's going to be anything I could wrap my head around. And Diane, before we get started, uh, before we kick off into Kalamazoo, Michigan, your career in social work and just how it feels to have a book that's won the Pulitzer Prize. I would love for you to read and explain a little bit about a poem from your book. Cool. Um, yes. Yeah, so this poem um, I wrote out on um, the coast of Washington State during a writing residency. And this is the first time I've read it publicly out loud. Here on this edge, I've had many diminutive visions that all at its essence is dove gray. Wipe the lipstick off the mouth of anything and there you will find dove gray. With my thumb, I have smudged away the sky's blue and the water's blue and found when I kicked it with my shoe, even the sand at its essence is pelican gray. I am remembering Eden, how everything swaggered with color, how the hollyhocks finished each other's sentences, how I missed predatory animals and worrying about being eaten, how I missed being eaten, how the ocean and the continent are essentially love on a terrible mission to meet up with itself how even with the surface roiling, the depths are calmly nursing away at love. That look the late nurser gets in its eyes as it sucks a habitual complacent peace. How to mother that peace, to wean it is a terrible career. And to smudge beauty is to discover ugliness. And to smudge ugliness is to be knocked back by splendor. How every apple is the poison apple. How rosy the skin, how sweet the flesh. How to suck the apple's poison is the one true meal, the invocation and the last supper. How stillness nests at the base of wind's spine how even gravestones buckle and swell with the tides and coffins are little wayward ships making their way toward love's other shore. That is so good. Mm, thank you. That is ridiculously good. I, uh, it, Dove's gray. Mm. Dove's gray. What's, what's, what, uh, what holds to your heart about that color? Mm. 
Well, I think, you know, as I was working on that poem, I most of my work emerges out of actual observation. And I was yep. noticing that, <laughs> yeah, who would have thunk it? Right? right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, that when I would kick the sand with my shoe under that taupe color uh-huh. was gray, gray. And the birds sort of under whatever the feathers were, were gray. Yeah. And I just had this sense of the nuance of everything, you right. know, that that gray is kind of a nuance. It's between extremes. It's mutable. And th- that's what s- struck me. The elegance that you tackle that with. And I was so hoping, I, I mean, it's, it's always embarrassing when someone says, so I think your poem means this. You're like, it doesn't mean anything like that. Uh-huh. I mean, the fact that it does, it, it, ha- it tackles that idea of being black and white of being one, one way or the other way. And this soft middle road that it, it coaxes you into. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a detail that cannot be taught. It's an elegance that I don't think can come from anywhere, but yourself from that, that voice. And you, you, the way you read it and own it, the way that you use as few people, the word, the succinctness of the way you write, you don't waste time getting where you're going, but at the same time, uh, you don't rush getting there. You know? mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that was what was interesting about the sonnet is that, you know, you've only got 14 lines, but of course, I didn't follow all the rules. So I could make the line, like this poem, I could make the lines really wide. Yep. But still, there's that compression. You have to kind of, make your point. And so I learned a lot about compression from working on sonnets. And I'm going to go off on a limb here and, 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 and guess that you did it because you loved it, not because you wanted to do it. Because, oh yeah. 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 Tell, tell me about that. Tell me about that. Yeah. You mean the sonnets themselves yes. or. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, it began just with serendipity or whatever mysticism, whichever, whichever you choose. Um, <laughs> I was, I was uh, driving back from this strange little road trip that I took to a place called Cape disappointment. And um, I, I stopped on the roadside to um, relieve myself because Word. there was nowhere. Yeah. And um got back in the car and I just started writing lines. When I got back to my little cottage um, uh, in the woods, I, I laid those lines out on the computer and I realized, oh, you know, I could make this 14 lines. And hmm, this sort of has a couplet. It sort of ends with kind of a rhetorical snap, you know? Right. And um, maybe this thing I've been wanting to do, which is writing a memoir of some kind, could be done in sonnets. Yes. And it just felt right. It felt good. For the first time in thinking about a project like that, like how to tell my life, this, it clicked. This was the answer. And I trusted it. And I have to say, I just thoroughly enjoyed writing this book there was never a moment where I thought oh I'm on the on the wrong track or I don't know what I'm doing the sonnet that that form guided me and um, I'm very grateful to it and to all those practitioners you know from the earliest days of, of the invention of the form until now yeah 
there's a kinship yeah a kinship and the beauty about your sonnets and i think and it's rare it's rare and i defy anybody to test me on this you're not going to find many good ones you're not, you're not. And, 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 and to find the whole book. And at first, the way it tricked me is that I read them and I'm like, what is it about these? They keep, oh, they're sonnets. They're, they're, and it says it on the cover. Yeah, Clifford, right here, buddy. And, 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 and the fun you had in writing them translates. And I believe that if you love doing it, then people are going to infectiously have the same thing. If you're belabored, belabored and beleaguered, yes, that's part of the process. Yes, that's absolutely part of it. But um, if, if, if you're beating your head against the wall, then it's not something you need to do, you know? And, it's it's yeah. there's the there's a mystique about Kalamazoo, Michigan. One <laughs> you can't help but love saying it, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, your ability to write this book uh, was to be able to teach and be removed out there, right? Yeah, I had actually. Let's see, I was just ending my full time teaching career. Mm-hmm. I made the decision to leap away. Um even though I didn't know how I was going to make a living and never have known, right. um, which explains my outfit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I took the leap to devote myself to my poetry. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so by, by the time I was working on Frank, I was still doing teaching in various ways, but not that full-time intensity that I'd been doing for 30 years. And um, so probably if I had been still teaching, it would have been much more difficult to develop Frank as I did. Right. But to have Kalamazoo for me is kind of a neutral zone. Maybe it's my dove gray, you know, (laughs) Um, because it's, I, it's very comfortable to me, but it's sort of between the poles of many parts of my existence that have been more extreme. Right. Um, Niles is where I was raised, which uh-huh. is south of here, very small, rural, uh, working class community. That's its own extreme. Right. I lived in New York City, and that's part of this book. That was certainly it's extreme. Right. Um, and then the travel I've done in places like Washington or, or New Mexico or Colorado, other places in Europe, um, you know, those experiences, because they kind of put you out on the edges of things. Um, they, it's, I do everything alone. And so they challenge my loneliness even more. So all of those are real extreme states of being. Kalamazoo is is a haven. You know, I've got my house, my shack, uh-huh. my little postage stamp of a yard. Right. And from here, I can do my my work in peace. Is it loneliness or is it solitude? Both. Good. Right. It's yeah. not a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. It's essential to the trade. It, it's just, oh, there's so many stories in my life. It's ain't about me. Clifford ain't going to do that. <laughs> Let's segue forward to something that's, just, that's dear to my heart that you and I talked about before, too. But um, other than being a teacher, you spent years in social work. Tell me uh, about that and how it factored into your writing process. Mm. Yes, I did. I When I lived in New York, I happened to get a job as a secretary in the 
School of Social Work at New York University. And as I typed stuff, I thought, you know, I think I could do this, mm-hmm. <laughs> this profession. And when I left New York in, in a state of, um, of warning, I came back to Kazoo and um, decided to enter a social work program. Mm-hmm. And that work, I, oh boy, you know, it was so intense, other centered, it has to be. Yes. And yet you're still, because of the work you're doing with the other, you always have to be working on yourself. So I will say that I think it schooled me in suffering and patience with the sufferer and with myself, nuance, survival, like nothing else I could have done. And it's certainly helped my teaching because for me, you know, teaching creative writing, you're not just teaching metaphors, Mm. you're teaching life. Life. Yeah. And so there's that. Um, But as a writer, it just, uh, it slowed me down and um, made me think, think in more, um, I'll say that word again, nuanced ways about my own experience, my own, my own suffering. Right. And it travels through the book and it, there's a, there's an empathy that you have that uh, is indicative of only those who, they always say, write what you know. And I, I cleave to that gospelly, but at the same time, you can also know it through firsthand experience. Mm-hmm. You know, and and to, to feel comfortable in what you say, it, it, there's there's no point in which I feel jarred. I feel awake. I'm aware there are moments where, as a good friend that says, you're not thinking about this right. You have this delicate way. You never preach, though. It's always storytelling. It always. Mm-hmm. Um, I have uh, several questions here from Nicole Tallman, who interviewed you for the upcoming uh, issue of the new uh, Blue Mountain Review. Um, she would love to know first and foremost how it feels to win a poll. The win a, mm. the, the Pulitzer, the Pulitzer. Yeah, well, you know, there had been a lead up because Frank, uh, which feels like an entity separate from me, so I don't say I won the Pulitzer. Right. I feel like Frank did, and Frank also received a Penn Volcker Prize, the LA Times Book Prize, and the National Book Critics Circle Award. And each one, I was just, you know, I would go numb. I just really couldn't believe it. And when my name was called for the Pulitzer, um, I, (laughs) it was a very strange feeling. I was home alone and I heard it stream, you know, it was streaming the announcement live. And when my name was called as a finalist, there are three finalists for right. every award. I thought, oh my God, you know, and then just quickly she said, and you know, this year's Pulitzer goes to Frank Sonnets. And I felt this hush and this almost a pressing in of my people. And by that, I guess I mean my dad. Mm-hmm. My my father, who died young, um, 
the person on the cover of the book who was, you know, just a very deep soulmate who died of AIDS in the 80s. Um, and then some of those writers who I draw on and who held me up, who I never knew in life, like, like Frank O'Hara and, um, and Keats and Emily Dickinson. And I just felt this pressing in like, like you did it, you did it girl, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the big doing it is the writing itself, but certainly feel, feels good to, and, and unbelievable to have been acknowledged in this way received to be received uh is an amazing thing to sit in the hush of it um to sit in the hush of it baby yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. this is my favorite interview ever and i i i, I went around this um i have i have a i've struggled with uh alcoholism and, and addiction my whole life and uh if you're comfortable with it um i would I would deeply be honored if you talk about how addiction factors into Frank. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, well, so there's a lot of addiction in the book and the, the center post of it is my son's long drug addiction. Terrible. He considers himself the worst drug addict who ever lived. <laughs> it's kind of an achievement, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'll say he's clean now and, one of the wisest people I've ever known. And the journey we took together, um, all I had to learn from him about where to place myself in relation to his addiction and how, even how it implicated me, um, that, that, is, that is the story I tell in the book. And um, the poems, most of the poems with my son in them are more his voice than mine. So we had conversations that I began transcribing after the fact and then turned them into sonnets. Yeah. And so it's one reason I consider Frank a kind of collaborative effort and I can't take all the credit. Right. Um, so I didn't want to just write about him, me objectifying his experience, but I wanted to give him a voice in the book. And in fact, the poem, there's a centerfold in the book with um, a really wide line sonnet from me, but on the back of that centerfold is a wide line yep. piece by him about um, the notion of being on disability and mm. and how he uh, manages talking about that with normals, you know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I say the same word. You're my spirit animal, Diana. I swear to God, I swear. It's, it is the, the the book Frank Sonnets. Uh, it's a, it, it. People need to own this. Um, I, I, I've said this and it's, I probably said it ad nauseum, but I never flatter. I think flattery is the only socially acceptable way to lie. Um, and I want people to buy, I want people to buy this book. Where can people find your book? Where do you oh. want them, where do you want them to go to get it? Well, their local independent bookstore, darling. That's it. That's it. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. And, um, right after the win there, nobody could find the book. 
every, right? every play is sold out. But I think now um, it, it's been redeemed and restored. And so people ought to be able to find it at their, at their little bookstore around the corner. Nice. <laughs> Diane Seuss, this is, this is an honor. It's an honor to have you on. It's an honor to spend this time with you. It's an honor to have you in the upcoming Blue Mountain Review. Um, if I can ever do anything for you, if NPR, mm. WGC, if we can ever do anything for you, please let us know. And if you Thank have, you. if you have one piece of advice that you would give to upcoming poets, what would it be? Mm. Um, don't imitate. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, take, don't take your cues from what other people are doing. Take your cues from your interior. Be willing to be um, only yourself because um, your specificity, your strangeness is what makes the poems important. You know, I can yes. read hundreds of poems in which that are sort of a daisy chain of imitation. But when I, I am less concerned about technical uh, perfection than I am about the truth of, of someone. And when I, when I receive it that way, when I feel them there, that's when it matters to me. Diane, that's, that's where we close this show. That's where we shut this down. Please cool. let me know when the book goes, you know, when it keeps going, we're going to have you on the assistant show to this pretty soon. But uh, until then, uh, let me know when we can have you back on. Wonderful. Anytime you ask me. And right. uh, I appreciate your focus and your time. Thank you very much. You're a genius. And before we bring on our next guest, let's hear Where Is My Mind by the Pixies. Stop.
And to close out, we have a long-standing friend of the show, Robert Gwaltney, whose novel, The Cicada Tree, has been published and making true waves. Robert Gwaltney, how you doing, boss? Um, good. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. It's fantastic to see you. And I love showing the alter ego of our folks on this show. And you are a mover and shaker within the Easter Seals um, organization. Please tell us about that and how we can find that and support it. Sure. So, so by day, I work as vice president of early education and care for Easter Seals, North Georgia. We are a nonprofit organization serving children and families during the most vulnerable time and the most critical time in the child's life. Um, our children, about 30, 40% of our children have a diagnosed disability and all of our children are living at um, or below poverty and, um, and all the hours between I write. How did your work with Easter Seals factor into your novel, The Cicada's Tree? Um, so I think that one of the, so, so the novel you know, takes place in 1956 and it, it's told from the, from sort of a slightly older point of view of the, the protagonist, Annalise Newell, who's 11. And so Annalise Newell is looking back on the summer of her, um, of her, the year that she turned 11, the summer of 1956. And uh, there are a lot of children in the book. And, uh, you know, and uh, that's been a question. And I think that one of the kind things that people said about the book is they felt that I um, accurately portrayed playground politics, um, the lives of young girls. Yes. Um, so, yeah. I, so I think that um, it's interesting. Uh, when The question about how did Easter Seals factor into it? I think that in a way, you know, the work that I do, I am in close proximity to young ones. Um, all the time and our corporate office actually is adjoined to one of our early education and care centers. So through the wall of my office, I can actually hear children at play. Right. So, so it's always there. I can hear the children's voices and I can hear the laughter. Um, so I think that in that way, I think that Easter Seals has played a role in, um, in, in the book, The Cicada Tree. And then of course I have, I have nephews, I have a niece, and um, I've always sort of kept that 11-year-old version of myself uh, close in my pocket. <laughs> right. So it begs the question, who are you in the cicada tree? Who do you identify with most? Well, you know, I think I'm all the characters in some way in the cicada tree. Yes. Um, but I think if I had to pick one that I relate to most, it would be the protagonist, the 11-year-old Annalise Newell. But I think that um, I do understand the characters. I think that it's, this Katie tree really is all about young girls and women. It's yeah. sort of a tribute to the Southern women in my life, the women that raised me up and um, made me the person I am today. So it's an amalgamation of me. And I think it's an amalgamation of all those amazing Southern women that, that are here in my heart always. The fact you used amalgamation twice put you in my heart forever. But <laughs> it's amazing. No, you said it once. Yes, sir. You said it twice. I'm, That's uh, my boy. I, no, I had this. I had this tendency to echo things. As you should. <laughs> that word needs to through time, man. And if, when people want to find like the basis about why you write, who you write, what you do, they can find so many uh, different sources right now um, that are bragging on your book. And you'll be humble. I'm not trying to call you out on this stuff. So I'm going to leap forward to um, after the contract. And um, 
reflecting back now, uh, now that you're published, how does the reality of uh, your publication uh, line up to what you'd hoped it'd be? I mean, I would say overall, um, my expectations have been exceeded. Really, you know, when Sweet. when you're when you're a debut novelist, and you know, and with the with the smaller press, you don't really have a platform. Um, you know, it started to sink in. You know, a couple of months out, that oh my god, first of all, people are going to somebody might read this book, <laughs> and, and then you know, I I started to think, oh my god. You know, God, I hope it's good. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then just, just you know, sort of, you know, staring into the face of potential failure. You know, will anyone like it and will anyone buy it? Yeah. But I think that, um, again, my expectations have been exceeded, but I've learned so much along the way. You know, it, it's a, um, when, when you're first out on this journey, I think the things that you realize is that one thing that you can count on in life is death. <laughs> and that every Tuesday, a whole new bunch of books are gonna go out into the world and they're brilliant books. Yeah. And um, all, of, all of us are competing just for a little bit of attention. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of noise out there. And what I didn't understand, I think, or fully appreciate is the um, is the importance that social media plays in the release and launch of a book and the longevity and life of yep. and word of mouth and I think the most humbling experience is when the book was initially out on that galley um, pre-launch um, and then when the book first came out when readers would actually reach out. Um, they would message me through Facebook and they would say really kind things. I had this one lovely reader who actually happens to live just outside of Atlanta. And um, she was reading the book and she would, she would touch passion. She would say, she would message me. She, oh my God, this just happened. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, well, was it a surprise? And she said, <laughs> yes. So, you know, she kept me, she kept me abreast throughout of her reading process and, um, and the journey with her book. So it, it is, I didn't realize how touched I would be by that aspect, how, how important it was for me, you know, to connect with readers. That was, it's really humbling. You can't, I mean, if, if and, and, and I ask you, and I ask you this now, like looking back, um, it would have, it, would it have, knowing now what your fans are writing to you and how they, they live through this book and your publisher grabbed this and ran with it and your, your advertising is amazing. If you knew this was going to happen, how would it have hampered your, would it have made it easier or harder for you to get the final product out? Oh, gosh, that's a really good, that's a question no one's asked me before. Um, I think that, I think that it would have given me a certain level of confidence that I think that during editing, I would have probably been very anxious and very insecure. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. You can't anticipate your audience. You can't. And and, and I can sit yeah. here and 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 I and I can tell folks, man, uh, without hesitation, that that your humility and genius have to match, and they do. They do, man. Uh, there's no weight to your work. There's a there's a levity that the weight comes in later. It's like a, it, it's, it's a true symphony what you do. And uh, when you when you bundle that symphony and you want to when you when you want to sell it to somebody or have somebody sell it for you. Uh, as far as publication is concerned, how does tell us about your current publisher and what what drew them to you? 
Sure. Well, you know, it's, you know, I, I work, I have an agent, we work through some of the larger publishers and I, and the, the book was out on submission during a really challenging time during COVID. Yeah. During a period of social unrest with a lot of, you know, attention being paid to the South. And um, I felt like after we'd been out for submission for a while, and we'd gotten really good feedback, but no one had nibbled. And there was one large press that really liked it. We spent some time with them. And at the end of the day, it, it, it didn't, it didn't work out. And I just right. thought, you know, I said, my, my initial plan, it might, was probably, and I was always fine with it was for the, for my first novel to go out with a smaller press. Yeah. And there, there are pros and cons with small presses and larger presses. And, one of the things that I liked about Moonshine Co. Publishing is that you know they were they're very transparent at the at, at the get-go. You know, they told me, look, you know, we'll we will put a book out into the world for you. We will assist you in editing it, but you have to know that you're going to be, you're going to bear the primary responsibility of, of promoting and marketing your book. Amen. Um, which I was fine with that because I think that for people who might be listening who aren't aware of the world of publication. Even big named authors with large publishers are having to do the same thing, really. They, they have a few more resources, yep. um, but um, there are probably just a handful of folks that get a tremendous amount of support. You know, I have a few friends here with large presses, and um, they're working just as hard as I am, hooking it out there, trying to get the word out yep. about their, their books. Now, I think that being with a larger press, it certainly helps give you greater access to bookstores. Yes. Um, but I felt like if I, if I could just get the novel out, if I could get a, uh, the novel out into the world, and if I could begin to build, you know, a humble readership, I would be extremely happy with that. And um, I knew that that sometimes smaller presses do have the ability to um, take artistic chances and to yes. be experimental. Yes. So um, I was given you know, some flexibility. I was able to bring a lot of ideas and thoughts into the cover. Um, during the editing process, I felt like the novel needed an epilogue. Right. And I pitched that. They said, we'll send it to us. We'll take a look. And, um, you know, if we think it works, we'll, we'll approve it. And I, I did. They liked it. And um, we were able to incorporate that into the novel. So I did enjoy that that level of, of collaboration. And I do think that that's something that, that writers can get from smaller presses, you know, some create some creative flexibility and artistic input. But you have to know that they don't have the resources that some of the larger presses do, and you're going to have to you're going to have to be doing the footwork. Now that you have the footwork under you and behind you, um, you're looking to the future and uh, not looking back. That's what's gorgeous about you. One of the many things. Uh, so looking forward. You have a new book on deck. Tell us about that. Well, I, you know, I, I did. I was struggling there for a while, not knowing exactly what it was that I was going to do. And there was a period of time where I thought, oh, you know, when I was writing the epilogue for the cicada tree, I thought, well, you know, maybe I could begin to see a second cicada tree novel. But then, but I had this other novel that I'd started to work on and started to think about. And I was having difficulty um, I was excited about it, but I was just trying to figure out how to move the story forward. And then I was driving home from Beaufort, South Carolina, <laughs> um, after having had a book event with the, with the Pack Homeward Literary Center, which was a dream come true. Right. Uh, That's one of those, you know, sort of holy grail moments. Yeah. Yes, and sir. I realized that 
why I was why why I was having trouble pushing the story forward, and it's because um, my pro, my protagonist was not female. So I said, okay, well, if my protagonist is female, I'll be great. If the characters are younger, I think that I'll 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 be happy. I'll be in a happier place. And um, so I've sort of reworked um, the project, and so it's going to be Southern Gothic. It's going to take place in 1931. Um, a Georgia coastal barrier island. Mm -hmm. um, the protagonist is a ghost named Willadine. Right on. Who is the only, who bears the distinction of being the only Hank to have escaped Eulalie Skye's Hank trap tree. And um, she's in existential crisis. She has no memory of the person she is, she was before. And more than anything, she would like another of her ilk to pass the days there on that island called Good Hope. So that's, um, it's Southern Gothic, um, all the things I love. And um, I've, I've been scribbling notes for weeks. Um, I've got an opening and um, I've just got to get the words on the page. And to get the words on the page, you've invoked music like, um, like Hanks almost uh, to make these things uh, flesh out. I know that you've uh, listened to, uh, Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven a lot with the first book and also by Mac Richter, November. Why is Mac Richter's November so important to your first book? Well, so for me, there was a melancholic tone that I was looking for when I was writing the Cicada Tree. And the, the lyrical underpinning of the Cicada Tree is Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Mm. Um, it's in three movements. The Cicada Tree is in three acts and each of those movements aligns with an act. Yes. Um, it's uh, Adagio, Allegretto, and Presto. Oh. Um, and um, of course, it, that just means that the, the, the tempo and the pacing increases as the, as the plot moves forward. And, Mac, and so there were lots, of, lots of, um, of music that I listened to, anything from Doris Day to Mahalia Jackson, mm -hmm. um, just to sort of evoke that period of 1956. But there is something very moody and, and lovely about Max Richter's work. And November was a piece of music that I listened to over and over when I took breaks from Moonlight Sonata. Robert, it has been, it is, and it will always be a beautiful treasure to have you on this show. Um, I cannot thank you enough for being here. And as things evolve, I'm going to track you down and have you on the show again. Is that cool? I would love to come back. Awesome, boss. And now to let you live a piece of the cicada tree, Let's hear November from Max Richter.
<sighs> Y'all, this has been June 2022's Dante's Old South. I'm your host, Clifford Brooks, and still free-stepping it with this intro and outro business again. It, uh, it has an elasticity to it that's frightening, but less so than when I first walked in the room. Almost a decade ago, as I mentioned in the beginning of this show, I uh, walked into WUTC NPR, who I thank with every ounce of my being for uh, putting up with my madness and helping me keep it between the ditches. Um, this is a fantastic bit in my life. Mr. Richard Wenham, he uh, sat with me when I was so nervous in the beginning. I was sweating through my shirt, had a whole script laid out, and uh, he asked me to set it aside and to see what came out, and so I did. Took a deep breath, and I closed my eyes, and I just started to talk. And um, when that little bit was over that first time, and I kind of looked up with a smile, Reverend was the first thing Richard Wenham said. Looked me dead in my face with all my friends there and said, Reverend, we're going to call you Reverend. Now, I'm sure at some point that's going to get me struck by lightning by the Almighty, so I try not to tempt it too much. But uh, there is a spirituality in art that's true and honest, loving, a safe space. And that's what I try to do with this show. June's Dante's just saw Diane Seuss and Robert Gwaltney. And we all got to hear how they love what they do, how it scared them, how it shook them, and how they pray that their words give you some of that, but at the end, the same resolve that they enjoy. Writing's hard work. Sacrifice, but I promise you it's worth it. Now, before I let y'all go, I want to uh, point you towards my website, www.cliffbrooks.com. I also have a uh, course on uh, late life diagnosed autism called Adulting with Autism, and a creative writing course called The R Working Writer on teachable.com. I've got a new book coming out called Old Gods, and uh, before I let y'all slip away, I'm going to read you a piece of it uh, called Jolene. Jolene. On Interstate 575, she stays on the tongue like navel oranges. Songs. Jolene on my lips and a photo of a heroin addict tucked in the Gideon Bible. Lovers beg juice from someone else, and we understandably stray, I guess. So pass from me. Pass from me to another, because men sense it. We feel it like aftershave. Music left for better days. Chip away at it, head back, unowned, unbowed, eager not to linger. Jolene sounds better with age. That's from my book, Old Gods, coming out soon. And for all my other books or questions about them, reach out to me through my website again, www.cliffbrooks.com. Both of those that have been involved with today's show are going to be or have been in the Blue Mountain Review. There's a publication uh, published four times a year by the Southern Collective Experience. Please check our notes for links to all this good stuff. And y'all be safe out there. God bless, be kind, and love one another. Good night.